0: A very good morning to you all. Uh, Nurses and I are very grateful for your friendship and your encouragement, especially on this uh, very special weekend. Allow me to read first from uh, Matthew chapter 5, and then I'll read Philippians, and then end with our passage uh, for this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its test, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then Philippians 2, uh, from verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of God. Since this is... uh, a, a global missions weekend. I thought I should begin by declaring what I consider to be the mission message as we read in Scripture that God is on mission to glorify Himself by means of advancing His kingdom on earth through the means of His people, empowered by His Spirit, who share and show the gospel of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. But we need to ask the question this morning, how does he do this? How does God carry out his mission? Well, again, as we read scripture, we understand that he bought a vehicle, the church, by which he carries out his mission in the world. And Chris writing his book, The Mission of God, he makes a clear distinction between the mission of God and how the church Relates to that mission. And he says, mission is not ours. Mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Or has been nicely put, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world the mission of God has a church mission was not made for the church the church was made for mission in other words the church came into existence because of the mission of God it's therefore not surprising I think that the church is God's only plan for advancing his mission in the world the church is God's primary means of bringing salvation to a lost world. God does not have plan B or plan C or plan D. He only has one plan, and that plan is the church. Yes, she might look clumsy, disorganized, messy, but the bride of Christ nonetheless. And that's God's only plan for bringing salvation a lost world. And God wants the church, the church whom he purchased by the blood of Christ to be faithful to its purpose, and yes, effective at advancing his mission throughout the world. And in the light of this mission mandate, the late apologist and Christian thinker, Francis Schaeffer, once asked the question, how should we then live? How then? Shall we live? And in Matthew 5, the passage that I read just now, looking at verses 13 to 16, Jesus answers this question by using two important metaphors, the metaphor of salt and the metaphor of light. And he uses these two metaphors as models of how believers should live and work and indeed participate in the mission of God before a watching world. How the church, how Christians should engage in God's mission. And he teaches about the responsibility of Christians in a non-Christian or sub-Christian or in a post-Christian society. What are our responsibilities as Christians in the 21st century? He emphasizes the difference between Christians and non-Christians, the difference between the church and the world, and he emphasizes the influence Christians ought to have on the non-Christian environment. The distinction between the two is clear. The world, he says, is like decaying meat, but you are to be the world sold, he says, The world is like a dark night. But you are to be the world's light, he says. This is the fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the church and the world. Then he goes on from the distinction to the influence. Like salt in decaying meat, Christians are to hinder society from decaying. Christians are to hinder society from continual decay, social decay. Like light in the prevailing darkness, Christians are to bring light to society and show society that there is a better way. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to work. There's a better way to do business. There's a better way to do politics even. Christians are to bring light to society and show society a better way. I think most Christians accept that there is a distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the church and the world. God's new society, the church, is as different from the old society as salt is from decaying meat. And as light is from darkness. But there are too many people who stop there. Too many people whose whole preoccupation is with survival. Oiling the machine. Maintaining the distinction. The salt must retain its saltiness, they say. It must not become contaminated. The light must retain its brightness, they say. It must not be smothered by the darkness. But that is merely survival. Salt and light are not just a bit different from their environment. They are to have a powerful influence on their environment. The salt is to be rubbed into the meat in order to stop the rot. The light is to shine into the darkness... It is to be set upon a lampstand. And it is to give light to the environment. And that is an influence on the environment quite different from mere survival. I want to suggest four things for our reflection this morning. First, I think Jesus, as we read these passages, especially in Philippians 2, and right throughout scripture, is teaching that his followers... Those who have placed their trust in the God of the Bible should be seen as radically different to the watching world. The great German historian Adolf Harnack, when he was asked why the early church grew so effectively and fruitfully the first 300 years after the writing of the New Testament, he said simply, these Christians they out-argued the pagans and outlived them in terms of their godly lifestyle. And one of the key themes in the Bible is the distinctiveness and the differentness of Christian witness before the watching world. Some of you heard me talk about the country of Jordan yesterday. In the early 1990s, Iraq invaded Kuwait And in response, Western armies went in and drove the Iraqis, the Iraqi armies out. But one of the consequences was that many Iraqi civilians fled across the border for safety in the face of these advancing forces. And King Hussein of Jordan allowed many Iraqis to cross the border. And they found a place to live. And because there were so many of them, He put up refugee camps so that they could be taken care of. And his understanding was that Iraqis were like first cousins to the Jordanian people. And that's the reason why they were all welcome in. But you see, in 1990, the Jordanian nation was a very small nation, a population of two million. And so they felt overwhelmed by the number of refugees that came across And the crown prince then, Prince Hassan, he approached church leaders and asked them to open their doors. Open your churches. Help us open your homes. He asked them if they could take some of these families into their homes and into their churches. So some of the Iraqi immigrants found themselves in Christian homes, not just for a month or two, but for the whole year. And one particular family... That welcomed a Muslim family and lived with them for at least a year. Experienced some wonderful things. This Christian family, they did not share their faith to any of the family members. But all they did was love them. They loved on them. They served them. They made sure that they were comfortable. They made sure that they ate well. But after six months, the the head of the Muslim family in the home Uh, made sure that, you know, the head of the house was alone in the living room. And he approached him and he said, well, you know, we've been here for almost a year. And you have welcomed us. And you have fed us. You have looked after us. You don't have to do this. I know you're a Christian. How come you haven't shared your faith with us? Well, he said, we just wanted you to experience the love of Jesus Christ. And before long, the whole family converted, started following Jesus. And there were more Iraqi believers, most of them Muslim converts in Amman at the time, than Jordanian born. And it was all because of the testimony of the Christians, it was the testimony of the church. And then the crown prince, Hassan, wrote a book about the history of the Jordanian state. And in the book, he made an astonishing statement. He said this. The Christians in Jordan are less than 1% of the population. But they are the glue that holds our culture together. What a testimony of the radical differentness of the Christians in that situation. All that highlights the radical difference of believers. That is part of our calling. It's not Our calling is not a call to be strange and awkward and weird. It's a call to be holy. A call to behave as God's children. A call to be like Christ. A call to be radically different. Second thing Jesus mentions is how Christians are called to penetrate the world. In these first few verses, he highlights the importance of being different. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? We are called to be different, and secondly, we are called to penetrate the world. The salt is to penetrate corrupt meat as the light of the world. He says, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, even if you tried. So, a salt and light. We're to have impact on a corrupted, crooked world. But we are also to bring the light of the gospel into the world. Historically, I think the church has often struggled with what its calling is in relation to the world. But the teaching of scripture is clear. The teaching of scripture is that Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Live in the world, but... Retain your distinctiveness. Being different but at the same time bearing witness to the light of the gospel. John Stott once put it beautifully when he said the calling of the Christian church is to be morally distinct without being socially segregated. And sometimes we have confused the two. It's a big challenge to be morally distinct and at the same time engage the world. But to have the desired result, salt must be, must be soaked into the meat and the light needs to penetrate darkness. And that's a call for social engagement in the different spheres of life. It's a call to get involved with your community, with the school, with the hospital, with the neighborhood watch. It's a call to do life with society. As one Dutch Christian once said, a ship is safe in a harbor, but that is not its purpose, no more than the fact that we are safe in our church buildings. That is not why we exist. We exist to share the light of the gospel before a watching world. This happens in every sphere of life, whether it's the world of art, the world of business and medicine and sport and education and government and family life. One of my favorite stories: I, I have a brother who is Egyptian here. One of my favorite stories: Years ago, I worked with Q International, and we had a clinic uh, in Cairo, and we had a brilliant doctor who was. Uh, we we used to say, you know, you have lovely hands. Uh, and, and at one point, he had a 14-year-old boy who was born with bilateral clubfoot. And this boy had never walked in his life. And they wheel, wheelbarrowed him to the clinic. And after three hours of surgery, the first miracle, his legs were straight. And after three months of physiotherapy, he walked back home. And months later, um, and you know what this you know, doctor did was to love this boy, love on the family, he, he made them feel at home. He, he was the Bible they had never read. And so months later, the mother was at the clinic talking to a nurse, and she noticed the doctor at a distance, uh, and she said uh, to, to the nurse, that, that doctor, he must be a Christian. He must be a Christian. I don't mind visiting his church if his church produces Christians like him. His testimony was seen in the life of his vocation as a surgeon, And they had the gospel. Another story, a young pharmacist, a um, young lady who trained as a pharmacist in, in Uganda uh, became a Christian uh, through campus ministry uh, but after graduation, he couldn't find a job. And and there was this one pharmacy that was notorious for all the wrong things. Uh, you know, abortions, backyard abortions. They were mistreating their clients. They were just doing all the wrong things. Uh, but they offered this young pharmacist a job. And she worked for them for six months. And after six months, she couldn't take it anymore. And so she approached the owner of the pharmacy. And she said, listen, the convictions that guide my life are out of sync with your practice. You're abusing your people, you're charging them too much, you're practicing abortion, I'm leaving, I quit. The owner said, no, don't leave. I have never worked with someone like you. I've never employed someone like you. You're so different, please stay. In fact, I want to give you the practice. You can do with it whatever whatever you want. She stayed. She opened a system of adoption that became well known across the country. And it was like a shining light of Christian testimony in that context. Why? Because the young lady stood her ground and said no. Christians are not only called to be radically different, but they are called to penetrate the world as salt in corrupted meat or light in darkness. And thirdly, as a consequence, Christians are called to influence and change non-Christian society to make it more pleasing to God. You can't make people or society holy, as it were, but our calling as Christians Is to be salt and light in both proclaiming the gospel and improving the culture that we find ourselves. Years ago, there was an American church historian by the name Kenneth Scott Latourette, and he was a professor of divinity at Yale. He wrote six volumes on the history of the Christian mission and then another six volumes on the expansion of Christianity. And in one of the volumes, he wrote about six weapons that are in the Christian armoury in terms of bearing witness to Christ before a watching world. He said there were prayer, evangelism, example, argument, action, and suffering. Prayer which should undergird the confidence that God answers our prayers. It undergirds all that we do. And Paul, writing to Timothy, says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. If there is more violence in the community... Than peace, more indecency than modesty, more oppression than justice, more secularism than godliness. Could it be that the church is not praying? Evangelism that is Christ centered, contentful, and creative, so that we reach as many people as possible in their different situations with the gospel. There's never been a revival in the history of the church without God raising up preachers to authentically proclaim the gospel. Preachers who can communicate the gospel as being true, as being powerful, as being wonderful. Evangelism. And the third weapon that he speaks about is argument, then action, and he talks about Example. Rodney Stark is another American sociologist who wrote a book on the rise of Christianity. And he traces how the early church grew after the end of the New Testament. He argues that it essentially grew because Christians took a stance in defending women in Roman culture, standing against abortion the practice of young girls being married off to older men and also when a man died the younger brother taking over all the property and putting the wife and children out on the streets that's why we have the text in James 1 true religion is caring for the orphan and the widow he says the church was distinct in that way COVID-19 is not the first, first pandemic to cause global havoc There have been two prominent pandemics in history. One of them, as we read, lasted for 15 years. And in that time, many Christians lost their lives. Why? Because they went out into the streets caring for people who were dying from these diseases. Even the Roman emperor at that time who was pagan said, if we do not match the deeds of these Christians, they will take over the empire. So you can see the example and action of these early believers from the early church. Pandemics like COVID-19, they are not a new phenomena. They're not unusual. There have been pandemics in the past, and the Christian community stood in its testimony in those times. And that leads to the sixth of the emphasis. He talks about prayer, evangelism, example, argument, action, and then Suffering. I think it's very rare for us to talk about how God can use suffering of believers as light before the watching world. But often, all of us, we have seen how non-believers tend to Christ when they witness the fortitude of believers in the midst of adversity. A few years ago, a friend lost his daughter He was actually brought up by his grandmother, only lived with his parents when he was over 20, became a Christian in university, uh, and had two children. So his oldest, uh, the daughter died, passed on. And after the parents watched him and his wife handling this in a way that glorifies God, the father approached him and said, son, I've seen many fake Christians in my life. But the way you have handled this You have shown me that there is hope. I want some of that hope. I want to become a Christian. The son became a Christian almost at the same time. And when he was being baptized, he was asked, yeah, how did you become a Christian? Well, he said, well, when my sister died, I watched how my parents handled this. They were not angry with God. They were not bitter. In fact, they had a joy I have never seen. And I say to myself, this must be true. That's how he became a Christian. And there are many other stories of family members who have experienced adversity that has led to the salvation of others. And from scripture, it appears as though suffering, uh, adversity, tribulation. Well, Jesus even promised that in this world you will have tribulation. And he then said, Don't worry, I'll be with you. I have overcome the world. And so there is a sense in which suffering, adversity, tribulation, various trials, all these things they do something to the believer that make us shine in the dark and make a difference in a broken world. And Romans five in Romans five, Paul expounds on the subject of suffering. And he does so in a way that challenges those who preach a trouble-free faith. Those who preach the prosperity gospel. Those who believe in a painless Christianity. And as you read Romans, you'll notice that the first four chapters are all focused on the glorious truth that God's people are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. In other words, God's people are vindicated in the courtroom of God by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone. And then in chapter 5, chapter 5 is a transitional section where Paul is moving from the reality of justification by faith to the fruits or the blessings of justification by faith in Christ. And the first of these blessings is peace with God men and women who were formerly in a state of rebellion against him have now been reconciled to him by the death of Christ. The the former rebels are not merely forgiven by having their due punishment remitted. They are brought into a place of high favor with God. And then two objects of joy are mentioned in verses 3 to 5. And he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So the first is the hope of glory. And Paul goes on to expound on this later in chapter 8. But the second object of joy is unexpected. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of glory, Paul says we also rejoice in our sufferings in verse 3. Notice what Paul is saying here. Just as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, or because of the hope of the glory of God, we also rejoice in our sufferings. If this seems strange to us, let us remind ourselves that in the New Testament, suffering is viewed as the normal experience of a Christian. In fact, new converts were warned that the kingdom of God could be entered only through many tribulations. You read that in Acts 14. And when tribulation came their way as it regularly did, they could not complain that they had not been prepared for it. Suffering was not only regarded as an inevitable feature of the Christian Lord. it was looked upon as a token of true Christianity, as a sign that God counted those who endured it worthy of his kingdom in second thessalonians one five so paul, he not only says this, but he lived this out right from the time. When he met the Lord Jesus on Damascus Road. When he was in jail in Philippi. Beaten up, bruised. He should have been angry as, as he nursed his wounds. He should have been bitter. But we're told instead he and his companion were rejoicing in their sufferings. And singing praises to God in the middle of the night. And the fundamental question is, how? How on earth is that possible? To rejoice in adversity. Well, Paul tells us how in verse 3. First, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. What is it that we must know in order to rejoice in our suffering? What is it that informs our suffering and therefore brings meaning to adversity when we find ourselves in that dark valley? Well, according to the scriptures, we must know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, there is purpose in suffering. It's never a waste of time. Suffering for the Christian is richly and profoundly productive. It produces what no other life experience can produce. Endurance and character, something that is desperately lacking in our age and time. If suffering can do this, then it has to be God. God is busy at work in and through our suffering, using suffering as a tool in His hands, shaping us, forming us, molding us, changing us. As divine dresser in John 15, verse 5. He blesses us with his very life that flows to all the branches. And meanwhile, he also prunes the branches so that they may produce more fruit. And what fruit, you may ask? Not bringing more souls to the kingdom? No. He wanted believers to be productive in what matters most endurance, character, and hope. The master vine dresser uses the sharp pruning life expertly and tenderly, cutting off any competing little branches that work against the purpose branches were created for. Maximum fruit production. Maximum Christ-likeness. And Paul says, the way the Lord does this Is by how he brings pressures in our lives in order that he might transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. God is working through suffering, and we are lost if we don't know that. You don't need to know exactly what God is doing, all you need to know is that not one single stroke of the vine dressers' pruning knife will ever be wasted. And eternity will declare it. We need to know that God is using our suffering. And in and through it. He is transforming us. Into the likeness of his dear son Jesus Christ. How does he do this? First he uses suffering. To produce endurance. He uses perseverance. To produce endurance. Endurance is the ability to keep standing firm when the pressure weighs heavy on you. Unfortunately, you can't learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there is no need to endure. Without suffering, without pressures, without tribulation, there is nothing to endure. Secondly, endurance produces character. There is no character without endurance and you cannot learn endurance without suffering says Paul think of the apostle Paul from the time he met Jesus on Damascus road all he got to know was trouble he had very little trouble before he met Jesus after he met him it was trouble after trouble after trouble Jesus brought him to all this because he was utterly determined that this man would be a man of glowing character for him. And thirdly, character produces hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glory of God. And these two things go together. When God works steadily in his children and pressure produces endurance and endurance character, the thing that begins to emerge is a quiet, calm certainty hope of the glory of God. And how does that certainty come? It comes when the Christian begins to slowly see. Your eyes are being slowly being opened to see that Jesus is making you to be more and more like him, preparing you for glory. God is forming something that will last forever. And you begin to look at your present circumstances In the light of the future glory. In the light of eternity. Let me close with this beautiful story from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, Imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild the house. At first you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks on the roof. You knew these jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But then... He starts knocking down walls in a way that doesn't make sense to you. And you wonder, what is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a different house than you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a distant little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live In this palace himself by the dwelling place. It becomes the dwelling place of God. He is building a palace. Not just a small cottage. And God uses our suffering to transform us into this palace. He transforms us to be more and more like his son Jesus Christ. So under that pressure I can go strong. Under that pressure, character can be formed. And under that pressure, Christ-likeness will be produced as I yield to the pattern of my heavenly Father. And so when Jesus speaks of salt and light, he's also arguing that Christians should retain their Christian distinctiveness. And he says, what good is soil when it loses its saltiness? May God help us. As he builds us. Let's understand that God is up to something big. Not something small. And God wants us to engage. He wants us to be part of his mission. And he wants us to do that as salt and light. God bless you.